Well, uh, dude, we're just going to jump right in tonight. Let's just dive right in head first. I just got back from Haiti, and I'm all amped up. Where's my Haiti team at? Got my Haiti team in the house, and, uh, and I'm all amped up. So if you got your Bibles, there's one under your chair. They'll be up on the screen. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. And I want to show you something here in the Scripture that I think is, that I think is pretty awesome, and it's going to set up this Paradox series that we're doing. Now listen, here's the question that when I first began kind of learning about Christianity, learning about Jesus, because I didn't become a Christian until I was a senior in high school, as I began to kind of discover this, I was always asking myself, like, what was Jesus doing? Like, what was he actually doing while he was here on earth in his earthly ministry? And I want to show you two verses of Scripture. In fact, the top one is Matthew 4.23. The bottom one is Matthew 9.35. And uh, you can look at it there in your, in, your, uh, in your Bible as well. And it says this. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Notice what it says in Matthew 9.35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. So this is important. This, these two verses give us a snapshot of what Jesus was doing in the three years of ministry as he's going around to different people. He's, he's teaching people. He's proclaiming the gospel, the good news that the kingdom has come. He's proclaiming the good news that the Messiah is here, that sins are going to be taken away, that people can be restored back to God and he's healing he's healing all kinds of people we know this as we uh, if you know much about the Bible he heals the blind he heals the lame he heals the paralyzed he does all this and so I want you I want you to picture this uh, this these passages like this you got Matthew 4:23 and you've got Matthew 9:35 now this is what I want you to do I want you to picture this like it's a sandwich all right I want you to picture it like it's a sandwich. Now, I'm a terrible artist, but that's a bun. Uh, uh, a Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich bun, I might add. And uh, anybody hungry in the house, you know what I'm saying? Love me some Chick-fil-A. And, uh, and so, and so we're going we're gonna to picture this as like a sandwich. And, and as you read through the book of Matthew, these two verses sandwich sandwich the ministries of Jesus. So this gives a little bit of, this tells kind of a summary. This tells a summary. These bookend or sandwich what Jesus is doing. So what, what, what happens is, is that um, then you got, uh, that's a big chick, chicken biscuit right there. That's the chicken on the chicken biscuit right there. Anybody? No, oh, that's a sandwich. Sorry, sandwich, not biscuits, but I like biscuits too. Anybody else like biscuits? Yes. All right, anyways. Uh, so, and so this would be, this would be Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7. This is what he's teaching and preaching. We know this as the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached. It was the sermon that Jesus preached, and this is what he is teaching and preaching. Then you see the other part of the sandwich, which, uh, which uh, if you like Chick-fil-A, you know that they throw a couple pickles on there. I wish they'd throw a little more because there's my little, my little pickles right there, and uh, we're just going to call them the pickles. They can be cheese for you. They can be lettuce and tomatoes for you, whatever you want them to be, but what'd you say? Pickle. I got a pickle fan. Good. All right. We're good. And uh, so we got, and so the pickles would be Matthew chapters eight, chapters eight and chapter nine. So, so you got the Sermon on the Mount. This tells you about the teaching and preaching of Jesus. And then Matthew chapter eight and chapter nine give you all these stories of Jesus going around healing people. And then this book ends 
the, or, or sandwiches in these two verses, uh, chapter uh, five through chapter nine. So that is important context to wrap your mind around when we jump into this because we are about to go on a journey for three series in a row, pretty much now until August. The first series is called Paradox, where we're gonna look at Matthew chapter five, the Sermon on the Mount, the first part. Then we're gonna look at Matthew chapter six in the second series, which is gonna be the series after Paradox, uh, Paradox and that series is gonna be called Camouflage. And uh, for obvious reasons, when we get into the passage, you'll see that. And then the third series will be on Matthew chapter 7, which is going to be uh, on the last chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. And that series is going to be called Red for other reasons that when we get there, you will see how that's all set up. And so are you guys excited about where we're going with this? Because it is going to be awesome. Good, good. I'm glad you are. I'm glad you are. Now we're talking about chicken sandwiches. Um, I hope y'all can focus from here on out. Now, this is what I want you to see. I want you to see this. As we go through these series, I want you to see how radically, how radically countercultural uh, these teachings are of Jesus. And that's why we titled this first series Paradox. Because paradox, uh, the word paradox, what it means is it means an absurd or seemingly self-contradicting statement that actually, after further investigation, proves to be true. Let me say that again. A paradox is an absurd or seemingly self-contradictory statement that after further investigation proves to be true. And Jesus uses paradoxical language all the time. He uses it all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says things that are so countercultural. He comes in, he flips the understanding of culture. He flips the understanding of religion. He flips the understanding of everything on its head. He says things that you would say, hold on a second, that does not make sense. And then you investigate it and you're like, wow, but there's something deeper to this. Like, for example, we understand eye for an eye, right? Like, we understand that. Like, if you take my iPhone and you throw it against the wall and shatter it into a bunch of pieces, like, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> You know, like if you do that, we understand eye for an eye. Then that means I'm going to take your iPhone and I'm going to smash it into pieces or you're going to pay for me another iPhone, right? Like, like you mess up somebody's stuff, you got to replace it. Like we understand eye for an eye. They would have understood this in this culture. See, in this culture, it would be like this. You have a sheep and my, and my son goes out and he kills one of your sheep and that's a part of your livelihood. And so what do I do? What I do is I go and I have to replace that sheep. That's eye for an eye. We understand this idea, eye for an eye. And then Jesus steps on the scene and he flips it upside down. Look at Matthew chapter five if you're there. Skip over to verse 38. He says this. You've heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Listen to what Jesus says. But I tell you, look, no, I want you to notice as we go through all, uh, as we go through this series and the next series and the next series, notice how many times Jesus begins every single section with, you have heard that it was said. In other words, you have bought into some understanding, whether it be through culture, whether it be through your teachers, whether it be through your parents, whether it be through religion, whether it be through whatever avenue of your life, and that has built a worldview that you have in the way that you see the world. And, and we all had that, and he'll say, you have heard that it was said. This is your understanding. But I'm about to tell you that your understanding is flawed, and I'm gonna flip it upside down. So he says, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, listen to this, do not resist an evil person. 
If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other one also. Literally, this is what he's saying. Hey, you know, you know how culture says, look, hey, bro, I'm a man. Ain't nobody going to punk me. You punch me in the face, dude, I'm knocking you in the teeth. You know what I'm saying? And Jesus comes on the scene. And he says, listen, some dude punches you in the cheek, in the right cheek. He says, turn to him the left cheek so he can punch that one as well. Jesus, what are you talking about, bro? Jesus done bumped his head. This is absurd, Jesus. What are you talking about? And then he goes on and he says this, and it just doesn't make sense. And he says, listen, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over to them your coat as well. If someone wants to come and take your shirt, he says, listen, don't just give them your shirt, give them your coat as well. Let me put it in our language where, 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 it would, uh, where it would actually make sense to you because clothes would have been valuable to them. Let me put it to you like this. It would be like if someone wanted to sue you and take your house, it would be like, hey, you know what? Why don't you just take my house? And by the way, you can have my car as well. That's what he's saying. This is absurd, Jesus. Like, what are you talking about? And then he goes on and he says, he says, and if anyone forces you to go one mile with him, go with him two miles as well. Give to the one who asks, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Anybody ever have anybody want to borrow from you? And you're like, bro, you ain't going to borrow that from me. That's my favorite shirt. He says, don't, don't do that. He says, give them whatever they ask for. I mean, this is absurd. This is crazy. Jesus, why would, you, why would you even say this? This flips the cultural norm upside down. I mean, it even makes you feel angst just hearing me read it. It's paradoxical. See, Jesus, what Jesus is saying is, listen, the core to what I'm trying to teach you and want you to understand is love. I want you to understand that I'm here so, to love people. I'm here to give people. I'll give the shirt off my back if they'll ask for it, and I'll give them my coat as well. Because at the end of the day, when people hear about what I just did on behalf of them, they're going to be like, wow, there's something different about him. There's something that is radical. There's something that is different. I need to know what that is. That's what made Jesus such a, uh, such a drawing figure. I mean, speaking in front of thousands of, thousands of people, over 20,000 people at one time, crowds were always following Jesus. And in the Sermon on the Mount, it is no different. The crowds are following Jesus. In fact, when you look at chap uh, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, it says that Jesus went up on a mountainside and he sat down with his disciples and then when you get to the end of chapter 7, the end of the Sermon on the Mount, I want you to listen to what it says. At the end, at the end of chapter 7, it says this. The last two verses say this. And when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teachings because he taught as was something different about him and they were drawn in. And notice when we begin in verse one and verse two of chapter five, notice how Jesus is talking to his disciples, but notice at the end it says, at the end of verse seven, by the end of his sermon, it says that the crowds were amazed. We're gonna talk about that here in a second. So it's paradoxical. If you got, if we're gonna jump right into this, if you got, uh, uh, we're gonna start in verse, chapter five. Let's read. We're going to read the whole thing. It'll be up on the screen. Then we're going to go back and check it out. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside. He sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. So he's teaching the disciples. And he said, Blessed or blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed or blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are, are the meek 
for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets that were before you. This is what I want you to notice as I was just kind of mentioning that as Jesus is talking to his disciples and the crowd begins to come in and begins to listen. I want you to notice the crowd eavesdropped on Jesus. How many of you guys ever had somebody eavesdropping in on your conversation? You're like, man, I feel kind of weird right now. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like Jesus doesn't even care. Like he sees the crowd gathering and he just keeps on and going. Now, how many of you have ever eavesdropped on someone else's conversation? Oh, come on. Be honest. Okay, here's the question. Here's the question. Why would you eavesdrop on a conversation? Because you want to know what they are saying. Like you eavesdrop in on a conversation because they have information that you would like to hear about. And this is what happens in this situation. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Uh, the first observation I want you to see is the crowd eavesdropped on Jesus. I'll tell you something, I'll tell you something that I do. Uh, on Sunday mornings, if you come to church here, you'll know that uh, Kevin Myers, our senior pastor, stands down at the front. People can come and talk to him about the message or whatever. And he greets every person out the front, talks to him, prays with him, things like that. And, uh, and so, um, you know, every, you know, once or twice a month or so, I'm down at some of the services, down at the front, just if anybody needs prayer. And what I like to do is, if Kevin is sitting right here in the front of the stage up there, I like to stand real close to him right here so I can eavesdrop in on his conversations. Not so I can hear what everybody's business is, but because I want to hear how he handles some of the situations that he gets. And it is amazing. I mean, he is so brilliant and like God's all over him. And I know he's a man of character and he's a genius. And so I, I sit here and I just listen to him, like help people with their problems and give them words of encouragement and give them healing. In like two to three minutes, I mean, he just like dismantles just problems and stuff there as God is speaking through. It's amazing. And I sit there and I listen and I soak into that because I want to hear how Kevin deals with those situations because when I get in those situations, I'll be able to handle those situations better better because I've gotten more wisdom. Like I want to eavesdrop in on it. Like he has authority in my life because I respect him. And here's the deal. Jesus did too. What marked Jesus was that people wanted to be around him because there was something about his character, something about his kindness, something about who he was that people were drawn to. Students, here's my question for you. What is it about your character what is it about your kindness? What is it about who you are that makes other people drawn to you and to want to hear what you have to say? See, I think when we begin to look at the life of Jesus and we say Christian, and the word Christian means to be like Christ or little Christ, it, it is the word that was given by the non-believers to the people who were living for Jesus. It wasn't the Christians that came up with that title, and it's because they were saying, these people are like Jesus. They're like little Jesuses. That's what they look like. And if we're supposed to represent and look like who Christ is, and we are loving people this way, radically different, and people can see that we're different, like the crowd saw that Jesus was different, then what 
what happens is they say, you know what? I think I want to listen to what that person has to say. And I want to challenge you and encourage you as we walk through these Beatitudes here in a few minutes to, to soak in that idea that what is it about you that other people are drawn to or what is it about you that repels other people and why do you repel other people and how do you get that fixed? I'll tell you, this, this, is, this whole idea, man, this plays out in this room. People come from all walks of life to H12. People come on all different parts of their spiritual journey. Some people come in here and they're atheists and they're agnostic. Some people come in here and they're from different religions or whatever. Some people come in here and they're brand new to faith. Some people come in here and they've been believers their whole entire life. They're sold out for Jesus. They want to go on the missions field and, and all this kind of stuff. I mean, we have all different gamuts. And here's the deal. Every week we prepare a message just like Jesus did, a teaching for the disciples in this room. But we know that there are first time guess there are seekers, there are skeptics, there are critics, there are people that are coming in and they're listening in to what's going on and they're hearing the message and they're eavesdropping in and, and what we want them to see is we want them to see, hey, there's something different and it's not just in the message that we're teaching, but it's in the life that we live. That's why it is so important that we create an environment here that is not clicky, that's why it's important for us to create an environment here that is not distracting of other people. Because there's people that are trying to eavesdrop in and you're distracting the people around you and because you're distracting the people around you, they can't listen in and hear what God would have to say to them. Like you ever been somewhere and you're trying to listen to somebody say something and people around you are just talking real loud and you're like, dude, like I'm telling you, eye for an eye, I'm about to bust this dude in the teeth. Anybody ever, anybody ever had that? Dude, I have that sometimes. I'm like, man, what is wrong with these people? Like, keep your mouth shut. And, and so we want to create an environment of love. We want to create an environment that we want every person, I say this all the time, that comes to this place to not feel alone, to feel like they have someone that could be there for them, encourage them, walk with them in life, because that is what Jesus would do. We are not here to raise up a bunch of people talking about who Jesus is. We are here to raise up a bunch of little Jesuses. That's the point. That's what Christianity is. And this is the picture that he gives us here. And we see them eavesdropping in. All right, I'm going to move on. Observation number two, the Beatitudes are, bless, are, the, are blessings for following Jesus. When you read these Beatitudes, it, it can be easy to think, okay, well, this is like a list of do's or don'ts that we're supposed to do. So we're supposed to be poor in spirit. We're supposed to be merciful. We're supposed to be meek. We're supposed to be this. This is what you're supposed to be. And so you need to start working harder at being more poor in spirit. You need to start working harder at being more meek. You need to start working harder at being more merciful. But that's not how this is at all. It's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is, he's saying, listen, these are promises that I give you as a believer. These are promises for you. This is not something you work for. This is what I give you. This is not something that you have to earn. This is what you receive. What he's saying here is, when he says things like, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. What he's saying here is, is like, listen, there's suffering in this world. You're going to have difficulty in life. And there's going to be times when you're going to mourn. And as a believer, you need to know that when you, when you mourn, blessed are you because there's a comforter that comes near to you. And that is me, your father in heaven to help walk you through it. 
That's the picture that he's painting here. That this, this isn't about a list of do's and don'ts. This is about, this is about becoming, uh, uh, as uh, what, this is about him giving you what he placed in you. I actually have this, uh, uh, you can write this down if you're taking notes. We don't find comfort in our performance, but in God's promises. We don't find comfort in our performance, but in God's promises. The Beatitudes are the results of God's grace in the life of the believer and promises that bring the believer hope. And I want you to notice this. If you're looking at them, there are eight Beatitudes. We're going to talk briefly over four of them this week, four of them next week. Of the eight, the first one and the last one are assurances. If you're reading it, I'll just give you, I'll just give you an example. Um, like if you're reading it, the first one says this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's yours. It's an assurance. But the rest of them say, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be. Blessed are the meek, for they will be. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for life, for they will be. And every other one says they will be until the last one, it says theirs as well, which means it's another assurance. So there will be means that it's a promise for the future. It's a promise to you. That's what he's saying here. And so let's, let's, uh, let's break these down. Let's look at them real quick. The first one is this. We're going to talk about four of them real quick, just rapid fire. The first one is this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So if you're taking notes, first, first point with there, poor in spirit, possess the kingdom of heaven. What does this mean? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, at the core of being poor in spirit, if you want to take a note, you write this down, is humility. It's humility. It's coming to God with an empty cup. If you were to picture your life as a cup, it would be coming to God as an empty cup. See, this is the deal. We are all born in the world with our cup filled with self. We all want to be God. We all want to be, we all want to make the rules. We all want to be on the throne. And so we fill the cup with self. That's what we do. And, and what happens is, is that you have to come to this place where you're in poverty of spirit. Now we understand this in financial terms. If I was to say, what does it mean? We were just in Haiti last week. We're, we're in a village with people that don't have access to education, don't have access to clean drinking water, that don't have access to many of the basic needs that we see every day. In fact, in the village we were in, I was talking with, uh, with one of our translators and he said, people in this village sometimes eat one meal a day. Sometimes eat one meal a day. One of the girls on our team was holding a baby, and after she had been holding the baby for several hours, she was like, well, the baby's got to eat. I mean, babies eat like every two hours. And so she went scrambling around trying to find somebody to give the baby over to, to go, to go, uh, to go find its mother to eat. And, and pretty much the lady was like, oh, no. No, there's no food. There's no food. I'm saying like, dude, I eat like four meals a day, like four snacks a day, you know, Chick-fil-A sandwiches whenever I want. We understand what it means to be poor in financial terms. But what does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means that you're at the end of your rope. You're at the end of yourself. It's where you realize that, you know what, I can't do it on my own. It doesn't matter how big and how great I am. I can never pick myself up by my own bootstraps and just do it and go after it. Because there's a void in me that is only by the power of God. That I'm poor in spirit. That there's poverty in my soul because of sin that has broken that relationship with God. And we all have it. And God in his great love pursues us and chases us and says, listen, I want to restore a relationship with you. And that's why I sent my son Jesus. But there's a humility to this idea of poor in spirit. It is, it is, it is, it is 
coming to God with an empty cup so that he could fill your cup up. In fact, he even uses that language later, uh, later on in this, in, this, uh, in this passage. Why would Jesus say this to the disciples that are sitting in front of him? Here's why. Because when someone would become king in this culture, all of the people that were close to them would become rock stars. Like it makes sense, right? Like if all of a sudden you were elected president, all of your homeboys or all of your girls would get like, like the Mac Daddy treatment. And that's what would happen. And what Jesus is saying here is, you guys recognize me as king and I'm gonna set up my kingdom, King Jesus, but here's the deal. You're gonna be persecuted and you need to humble yourself. And you don't need to think of yourself as rock stars because here's the deal, you're not gonna be rock stars. And he's resetting the expectations for them. That this is what it means to be poor in spirit. But listen, when you do that, when you humble yourself, notice what it says. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then when a person gets to a place in their life and they humble themselves and they say, God, I can no longer do it on my own. I surrender it over to you. My life is yours. My life is in your hands. He's saying, that is how you get into the kingdom of heaven. It is no longer you filling the cup with yourself. It's you filling the cup with his love and who he is. The second is this. Oh, uh, the second one is this. He says, he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I talked about that just a minute ago. But there's, there, is a, there is an acknowledgement when you mourn that, that not everything's okay, right? Like if you've ever seen someone mourn before, there's a vulnerability to it. There's an openness to it. It is, it is, it is, it is deep in their soul. They, when you mourn, you can't fight back tears, and we live in a culture that has, has broken this idea of genuine, uh, genuineness and openness and vulnerability with each other. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. I said I was talking to some students, and, and, and they don't know some of, the, some of the closest, deepest things about some of the close friends that they have. And, man, that's a shame. And what he's saying here is, look, listen, listen, there's something about mourning. There's something about being open. There's something about being vulnerable with people that can bring healing in your life. And so I would say that sometimes we put on a facade that everything is okay. And Jesus is saying, dude, you don't have to put on a facade that everything is okay. Because I already know everything's not okay. I already know that suffering is in your life. Or if it's not in your life, one day it's going to be in your life because we live in a fallen world. The people die. People get sick. Things happen. And it is no good. And listen, what I love about Jesus is that Jesus can understand the suffering that we go through. God is not so far removed from our suffering as a deist would say. A deist would say, well, God, well, I believe in a God, but he's distant. He's not personal. God is not so far removed from our suffering that he doesn't understand it. See, Jesus, God humbled himself. He comes down to the earth. Jesus, he walks here on this earth. And listen to this. He is tempting in every way that we're tempted. He is, he is, he knows what it means to experience loss. We know that Jesus lost his, his father when he was an adolescent. We know that he lost one of his closest friends in Lazarus. You know, the guy he raised from the dead. And it's where we get the shortest verse in the Bible where it says Jesus wept. Jesus knew what it meant to experience betrayal. One of the 12, one of the guys that he called that had been living with him, doing ministry with him, eating together for three straight years of his life, seeing the miracles, seeing what he's doing, and betrays him for money. Can you imagine what that must have done to Jesus? Judas betrayed him. He knew what it meant to suffer, suffer physical pain. 
He went to the cross. He was flogged. You get crucifixion, that's where the word excruciating comes from. A slow, painful death. God is not so far removed from our suffering that he doesn't understand. In fact, I love this quote by John Stott. He says this, suffering is something that is particularly associated with humanity. But the scars in the hands and feet of Jesus show us that God too knows what it means to suffer. Man, that's powerful. And what we can find comfort in is knowing that in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our difficulty, in the midst of our trial, God brings God brings his comfort to us. God, the Holy Spirit, the great comforter, comes in and he brings comfort to us. That it doesn't end with those who, it, it doesn't end with you're gonna mourn, but it is you're gonna mourn and I'm gonna bring comfort to you. Then he goes on, the third one is this. The meek will inherit the earth. What does that even mean, inherit the earth? I think this is what he means. I think what he means is, is that the meek will influence the earth, that, that they will have a lot of, of uh, uh, um, uh, influence into the earth. And here's why, because meek means strength that is focused. Meekness is not weakness, but meekness doesn't jump at every opportunity to show people how strong they are. See, what happens is, is that some people think they gotta be the man And they're always trying to pick a fight with somebody or bully somebody or something like that. And then there's other people who are like, man, I'm I'm just weak. And this would be someone who is strong, not just physically, but they're strong in their character. They're strong in who they are in their walk with God. They're strong in who they are in, in their integrity. They're strong in who they are as, as a man, as a woman, emotionally. This person is just strong. They're a rock. You know a person who's meek when you meet them because you want to be around them. They're the person that you go to when your world is falling apart and you know they'll listen. And you know they have this, and you see them go through difficult things, and you're like, man, that is the strongest person I've ever met. Anybody know anybody like that? You see somebody, you're like, dude, that person has been through some painful, painful things in their life. And you're like, man, they are so strong. They are so strong. That's meekness. That's what meekness is. And you know what? People are drawn to people like that. People like that, they get raises. People like that, they get elevated in their companies. People like that get elevated with with their friends. They they get elevated in those type of ways. And I think that's what he's saying here when he's saying that the meek will inherit the earth, that people respect them, that people come to them, that people are drawn to them. And we know this about Jesus. Jesus wasn't weak. Jesus was meek. And uh, and that was a big quality of who he was. And the fourth one is this. He says, and and the last one, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. This is, I I don't know if you've ever, I don't know if you've ever had like one of those days, man, where, where, uh, where you are just, just thirsty. You know what I'm talking about? Like it's a summer day, you've been like out by the pool ladies or guys, you've been like working on a car or doing something and uh, something manly and, uh, You've been sweating. You know, you're just, man, you're just hot. And you're like, dude, I am just thirsty. And you go in the house and you open up the refrigerator and there's nothing in there. Oh, man. And so what do you do? 
you drive up to Chick-fil-A and you get the biggest, man, I'm telling you, I'm going to Chick-fil-A tonight. You get the biggest sweet tea. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Like you don't even drink it to the straw because you're that thirsty, you know what I mean? And, and, you, and, and I don't know if y'all do this, man, if I'm really thirsty. I take the lid off and I wait a second. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I got, never mind. And uh, I was going to say something else, but I'm not going to. That's the filter. My mom said, don't always say what comes to your mind because yeah, I get you in trouble. Anyways, and, uh, and so, and then I just, I just take a big old gulp and it's so refreshing. And listen, this is what he says. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. See, this is what I found and this is what is placed in us. Remember, this isn't he isn't saying, become more hungry for me. Become more thirsty for me as your Lord. He, that's not what he's saying. Become more hungry and thirsty for righteousness. What he's saying here is, is that if you are a follower of Jesus, you will be hungry and thirsty for righteousness. That, that you become hungry and, and, and you get filled. And so what happens is, what he's saying is, you, when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, he's like, I hand you a big old fat cup of Chick-fil-A sweet tea to quench your thirst and fill you up. I love the language that's given all throughout the New Testament of this idea of, of kind of like feeding on God. Not literally like I'm going to eat God, but you know what I'm saying? <laughs> that's impossible. But, uh, but this idea of like, feed, like, feeding, like, like feeding on it, soak it soaking it in. Like, like Jesus says this, Satan comes and tempts him, Matthew chapter 4 and the chapter right before this, Satan's tempted him. And he says, you know, Jesus has been fasting 40 days, 40 nights. The Bible says Satan comes to him, he's trying to tempt Jesus, trying to throw him off. And he says, hey, you look, man, if you're the son of man, if you're, if you're God, dude, just tell these, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus says this, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Hey, listen, you think that what sustains you in your life is that you eat your meals every day and you drink enough water every day. But I'm here to tell you that what sustains you in life is the fact that all God has to do is say, you're done and you're done. And what sustains you in life is that if God says, you go on, you go on. That he is the sustainer of life. When you read through the Sermon on the Mount and you read through Matthew here, he says things like, listen, the smallest of birds, sparrows, not fall from the sky and God not know that they fell from the sky? Of course he does. He talks about how he clothes the grass of the field and the flowers of the earth. God is in the smallest little details. And he says, listen, if God cares about those fine details, then how much more does he care about those who have been created in his image? The chief of his creation, man. What a beautiful picture. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. We just got tapped in tonight. And I want to close with this. I want to throw out a challenge to you guys. The first challenge is this. Press in deeper over these next couple series and begin to experience the promises that God has. And let me tell you what I do. I say, God, you promise in your word these things. God, you promise these things. And God's like, I don't need to be reminded. I know, and I got you covered. The other thing I would say is this, is that 
as I mentioned earlier, what is it about who you are that causes people to either be drawn to you or to be repelled from you? And do some business with God on what you feel like you need to do around that situation, whether it is drawn or repelled. And the third thing is this, is that several years ago, it's been about, well, actually it's been about four years ago now, um, I memorized the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever memorized like a big chunk of something before and, and then like you go back and try to like quote the whole thing and you're like, oh, uh, uh, you know, and you can't remember some of it. Anybody ever done that before? Um, and, and this is what I'm going to do. Throughout this series, I'm going to go back and just kind of do a refresher and like, re, like re-memorize. And I said a lot of it memorized because I did before, but sometimes I'll be going through and I'll be like, oh, what, and, and what is that word there? And, and uh, so I'm going to go back and refresh. I'm going to re-memorize it. And this is what I'm going to challenge you to do. I know that some of you have memorized a Bible verse before. Some of you guys have read books of the Bible. We've thrown out those challenges for you. But I want to throw out to some of you guys a challenge that is a serious challenge. It is a serious challenge to say to someone, I want you to not just memorize a verse in the Bible. I not just want you to read three, three chapters of the Bible, but I want to challenge you to memorize three chapters in the Bible, the Sermon on the Mount, the words of Jesus, Jesus' sermon. And I want to challenge you with that. Some of you will take the challenge. Many of you will not take the challenge, but I know this. One of, uh, one of, my, one of my close pastor friends, I'm going to close with this, Ben can come up. One of my close pastor friends actually was on staff at 12 Stone said he was talking with a rabbi. And he was talking to this rabbi and he says, man, I am just amazed that you have the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament memorized, which is incredible. I'm just amazed by that. Like I'm amazed that you begin memorizing that early on and early on and early on. And he said this, he said, because I believe it, I read through it every single week. I read through the Torah every single week. And he said this. He said this to my pastor friend. If you believe that Jesus is who he said he was, he said you would read the Gospels every week and you would memorize them. If he is your God and your Lord, why would you not do that? Now listen, I don't want, I'm not trying to put a guilt trip on you and I'm not trying to say, oh, you need to go or you're not spiritual or God doesn't love you because that's just not true. That is not true at all. But what I am saying is this. That when I say three chapters of scripture and some of you are like, oh, I can't even, man, I can't even study for a test. Like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Say, hey, man, really think about that for a minute. Maybe you need to take a challenge. And maybe you need to take a challenge that you're not getting a grade for. We live in a culture that just does the bare minimum. I want to challenge you to have bigger expectations. And watch what God does when you begin to place his word in your heart. 